The microfossils are spectacular. I think I named about 60 species that hadn't been named before. Welcome to The Rocks Beneath Our Feet. In this series, five geologists talk about their years devoted to working for the Geological Survey of Western Australia. From understanding early life to the tectonic processes that shaped our planet and making the maps that unearth our understanding of Western Australia's geology, they reveal their shared passion for discovering the stories in the rocks beneath our feet. I'm Julie Hollis. In this episode, Kath Gray talks about her meticulous PhD work on microfossils from drill core from Central Australia and the recognition of how they relate to a giant meteorite impact almost 600 million years ago. When I went to do my PhD in Sydney, which was in 1991, I was lucky because I was co-working with Clive Calver, who was at Tasmanian Geological Survey. He was interested in doing the carbon isotope record. So he did the stable isotope record. And I actually did palynology back to my old field of palynology, looking at the microfossils with a bit of stromatolite stuff chucked in. But mainly it was because we had a really good drill core that had been drilled in the Amadeus Basin and in South Australia. And we were able to go and work in the core library. We got plenty of support from the other geological surveys to do this. We were able to go and work in the core library in Alice Springs. And six weeks in the core library in Alice Springs is not the nicest thing with the Ross Ranges fading away into the distance around you. The spectacular scenery around Alice Springs is enough to make any field geologist wish they were out mapping. You know, drill core is absolutely vital material because you know exactly how things fit in relation to each other Mm. and we spent another long period in the core library in Adelaide sampling and it was all done very methodically and we selected which samples we thought were going to produce the best results we noted any stromatolites that were in the core there weren't that many but mostly it's very fine siltstone to claystone That preserves very well the plankton that was floating around at the time. That's probably algae, single-celled algae Mm. that formed the phytoplankton. And like any palynology, they're superb for doing biostratigraphy because you get hundreds of specimens out of a single sample. Mm. You only need about 10 centimetres of core at the most. And you dissolve it in acid and using a combination of very nasty acids like hydrofluoric, you end up with just organic material, which you mount on a slide. And then you do the tedious work of logging it down the microscope and identifying everything you can. Mm. Clive and I cut the samples in half. And he took half to do his chemostratigraphy and I took half to do the palynology. So we knew exactly what the results he was getting and how they fitted to us. Could you describe what chemostratigraphy, lithostratigraphy and biostratigraphy are? Lithostratigraphy is the basis for studying sedimentary rocks. It's looking at what type of rock it is. Is it a sandstone, a limestone, dolomite? And, of course, it's all based on the theory of superposition. So a layer of rock is succeeded by another layer of rock and is succeeded by another layer of rock. So they're all in age order. And from that, you put together rocks that are related. 
and you try to match the rocks up on the basis of the rock type, but also of the rock relationships across a basin. Chemostratigraphy is looking usually at the amount of carbon isotopes. You also use strontium isotopes. And what you do is measure the ratio of two isotopes and you go up the core spotting them. So you end up with a curve. You can very definitely see these transgressions in the isotope curves. And you can draw lines through them that represent periods when the atmosphere in particular was all the same around the world. Another way of correlating rocks from different locations that were formed at the same time. And then biostratigraphies using living organisms or fossils of living organisms to put together a time scale. Individual species only live for a short period of time. Some live a bit longer, but most of them only have a very definite time period in which they're in existence and then they become extinct. Mm. So if I said in the simplest terms that I'd found a dinosaur, anybody who knew anything about geology would know that I was talking about something in the Jurassic to Cretaceous period. And if I told you the name of the dinosaur, you'd be able to pin it down tighter. Mm. And you don't just use one species, you use a combination of species. And you talk about zones, which are a zone where you've perhaps got six species that all occur together. And that gives you the time period in which they occur. And obviously, if you can fit that into a lithostratigraphy and the chemostratigraphy, then it's a very good evidence that, you know, you're on the right track, you've got everything tied together. So back to Clive and Kath's chemostratigraphy, biostratigraphy and lithostratigraphy on the drill core. It was all, you know, meticulously documented and the whole lot. I got a really superb succession. The microfossils are spectacular, very complex with lots of spines and different types of processes sticking off them. I think I named about 60 species that hadn't been named before. Wow. That matched beautifully, matched the um, material in the Adelaide Rift Complex, matched the material in the South Australian Officer Basin, and it matched the Amadeus Basin, and I could tie it all together. In addition to that, for some of the material, there were well logged and detailed lithostratigraphy. So it was a case of putting the whole picture together in this big sort of mosaic Mm. and seeing what happened, and we got absolutely consistent results. So the lithostratigraphy, which formed the basis for the original subdivisions, any well-logged data, any geophysics or anything like that, Clive's chemostratigraphy and my stromatolite and palynology biostratigraphy matched up beautifully for the whole basin. So we now have a complete record that we can use, mm-hmm. particularly having drill core. That was the real key to the whole thing because you know exactly where you are within a drill hole. Yep. You know the depths, you know all the details. I felt very proud of the fact that there was very solid evidence for the way that came out. Yeah. That also threw up a very interesting thing in that 
there's a major change in the lower part of the drill holes. The fossils are mainly just simple rounded things, and there's hundreds of them. It's not just based on one or two specimens. Mm. And then there's a sudden change, and you start getting all these spiny things, and there's a very distinct development of the spiny forms, a, a rapid change and a huge increase in the number of species. I was quite lucky because the survey had just got a big plotter and it was the first time I managed to plot my drill hole data sort of in one picture. Mm. And I piled it all into the plotter and it started coming out. And I can remember phoning Malcolm. That's Malcolm Walter, Kat's PhD supervisor. Saying, you're not going to believe this, but the change from the simple lyospheres to the spiny ones is coinciding with the Ackerman impact event. And he said, oh, come on, you know, I don't believe it. The Ackerman impact event refers to a very large asteroid impact which occurred in the Gaul of Craton in South Australia. Uh, it was about 580 million years ago, but we don't have any very tight dating on it. We can only say that because we know the age of younger and older rocks. The bolide that hit, we're not sure what it was, but it's probably an asteroid. It was about 4.8 kilometres in diameter, so it'd be as big as Perth CBD. And the uh, initial crater that it formed was about 45 kilometres in diameter. And then the whole crater collapses and, and you end up with what's called the collapsed crater. That was about 90 kilometres. So if you had hit Perth, the whole of greater Perth would have been within the crater. Mm -hmm. And it's also through a huge blanket of material out that travelled several hundred kilometres. Again, if we're thinking of WA as the analogy, it would have reached Geraldton and Albany with this blanket of material, hmm. and that's known as the Ackerman Impact Ejector Horizon. Yep. The crater's about half the size of Chicxulub, which is the one in Mexico that's associated with the extinction of the dinosaurs, so it was a pretty big one. Hmm. The rocks that it hit were the Gaul of Volcanics, and in particular a unit called the Yardia Dacite, which is quite distinctive, lithological. It's got a sort of pinkish tinge to it. The ejector layer landed in seas on either side of the Gaul of Craton, which was probably land at the time. Mm. And the seas were depositing a greenish coloured siltstone. So the ejector layer is quite obvious within this siltstone. As a pink layer. And the history of how it was recognised is quite interesting Vic Gostin of Adelaide University and his PhD student, Peter Haynes. Who is now a senior geologist at GSWA, where he has been working for almost 20 years. He was mapping in the Flinders Ranges, found this layer of volcanic rocks, some of them quite big, up to about 50 centimetres across, in the middle of this siltstone succession. And initially they thought it might be a volcanic horizon and that it'd be worthwhile getting a date on it so they could date the whole succession more precisely. Mm. So they sent it off for dating and were very surprised when the dates came back because instead of being around 800 million years, which was what they were expecting, it was 1550 million years old. And the only rocks that they knew about anywhere around that were that age were in the Gaul of Craton. 
and that was about 200 kilometres away. So it was nearly twice the age that it should have been. Yep. And then they discovered that you could recognise the same horizon as a very thin layer, but in a couple of drill holes in the Adelaide Rift Complex. And later it turned up in one in the officer basin, which was 500 kilometres to the west of the Gaul of Craton. Mm. And whilst Vic and Pete were scratching their heads trying to decide what all this meant, another geologist from Adelaide University, George Williams, was also sitting there scratching his head because he'd just recently received some geophysical maps. and Geophysics was fairly new at that time. And there was a huge anomaly centred around Lake Ackerman. And he couldn't work out what on earth this strange circular anomaly was. And eventually the three of them put the story together and realised that George had found the crater that had supplied the rocks for the Ackerman impact event. And initially, from my point of view, this line was a very useful thing because it provided a synchronous timeline through the drill core that I was looking at. Mm. And I was using that to actually hang my palynology results off the line. By this, Kath means a single line representing the Ackerman impact event that she could draw through all of the drill core. If you fit it into this mosaic I was talking about, you can narrow it down more, mm. even though you haven't got absolute dates in the drill core. You go in the core library, the amount of cores overwhelming, mm. but we were able to predict which core trays it should be in. And then I realised that the changes I was seeing in the the uh, microfossils was associated with this particular line. Yeah. I put the story together about how the impact might have affected the organisms that were living there, the original organisms. The smooth-walled lyospheres. I don't think were able to reproduce very successfully. When compared with the more complex spiny ones that had proliferated after the impact. I've since found one species occurring below the impact layer, and that is what you would expect. Kath explains giving the dinosaur extinction and rise of the mammals as an example. The mammals were around but in small numbers and not easily spotted during the age of the dinosaurs, and it was only after the dinosaurs had been wiped out that the mammals took over. I think we're looking at something similar. The idea was then to test it with other drill holes, and a PhD student in Sweden, Sebastian Wilman, ran tests through several other drill holes and got very similar results to mine with the same change and a rapid expansion of the different species at that period of time. Right. It looks as if the spiny acritarchs are resting cysts. Could you say what an acritarch is? Acritarch is a catch-all phrase. It actually means we don't know what this is. We're not sure of the affinities of these creatures. They appear to be plants that photosynthesize, most of them. There's probably a few other things mixed in there that could be protocysts and various other types. They're algae, so they're one step above the cyanobacteria, which are the main organisms that occurred earlier in the Precambrian. Cyanobacteria and other bacteria don't have a membrane around their nucleus. 
whereas algae have a membrane around their nucleus. That's the main difference. Mm. And in particular, the algae can use other methods of reproduction. So the resting cyst is just one stage in their life cycle. Normally, they just split in half and produce two halves, which is the same way the cyanobacteria do it. But then they got this additional phase which allowed them to protect themselves. In some cases, they appear to produce a lot of smaller specimens inside the parent's cyst. The offspring then, there's probably 20 or 30 are released when the cyst springs open. So they've got slight differences in their reproduction and so on. Hmm. And of course, they then gave rise to things like seaweeds and eventually to plants. And a lot of the plants we know today have their origins with the algae, whereas the bacteria just continues on its own way and proliferates as bacteria. These cellular organisms produce a very hard surrounding if conditions are right and those tend to be low temperature lack of light and when those conditions get bad lack of nutrients they insist and they can then settle to the bottom and stay there until conditions improve and then they can hatch out so in a way they hibernated through the worst conditions of the acronym event mm. the Amounts of dust and cloud would probably have blotted out the sunlight for quite some time. I once flew through a sandstorm on the way to Adelaide yep. to give a lecture on the Ackerman and I suddenly realised that the opaque view out of the window was probably what had happened and there was no sun to speak of and it was probably enough to give the spiny acrotarts the advantage over the cyanobacteria, which had been the main organisms up to then. You've been listening to The Rocks Beneath Our Feet. You can discover more about GSWA by visiting dmp.wa.gov.au forward slash GSWA or find GSWA on LinkedIn and Facebook. If you like what you've heard, give them a follow.